The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Top of the Pods. I'm Ben Luke and each week over the summer I'm looking back at the highlights of 200 interviews and discussions we've done on the Art Newspaper Podcast over the past two years. This week we return to three interviews with artists working in film and video, Ragnar Kjartansson, Christian Markley and John Comfra, all of whom have a number of museum shows in 2019. The Icelandic artist Ragnar Kjartansson is showing a new work at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York this summer, but I spoke to him in London in October 2018 when he was showing his work A Lot of Sorrow. It was part of a big video art survey called Strange Days, curated by Massimiliano Gioni from the New Museum in New York. A Lot of Sorrow was a collaboration with the US rock band The National, in which the band played their song Sorrow repeatedly for six hours at the MoMA PS1 gallery in New York. I began our conversation by asking Kjartansson how easy it had been to convince the National to commit to this epic feat of endurance. It was actually, you know, yeah, it was actually weirdly easy to <laughs> convince them. Probably because also, like, I mean, I it was just like one of those, I mean, I often, like, you know, come up with ideas and write some people on email and maybe people just say, like, no way and... And, and like in this in this case, it was just like yes, yes, we're we're up for it, like right away. <laughs> Did it have to be sorrow? I mean, yeah, it had to be sorrow, and they because they they were also totally up for it because it was sorrow, because musically it made so much sense to them because the sorrow this the song has this kind of circular repetition within itself, that is like a song that just can go on forever, and I think also it had a, had quite an impact that like I, because I. I like my, my friend Nico Muli, this composer who who's also also a friend of them. So he's like this mutual friend that 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 recommended that you know that just kind of pitched the idea to them. So I think that I think that had a really big effect. So they knew that you had some sort of musical integrity. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So like you say, okay, if Nico says says he's cool. He must be cool, or <laughs> something like that. <laughs> now, um, did you give them any stage directions? Because watching it. I'm intrigued by... It's one of those pieces which, as you watch, you, you know it's a durational piece and you see all sorts of incident happening. But, did, but how much of it is directed and how much of it is completely natural? Um, there was no directing except... Kind of mutually, we all agreed that it was important not to... Uh, you know, to repeat the song, really, and not make it a jam session. That was sort of the only... That was sort of the only thing we talked about and they like I talked about with them and they of course like they, they really agreed is that 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 musically it should always just try they should try and do it sort of the same but of course there come variations within that so that was the only direction and nothing nothing else really <laughs> and, and, and so tell me why sorry sorrow from the point of view of content as well I mean you, you've spoken about the form this sort of circular form yeah Tell me about the content of Sorrow and why that was significant. Yeah, the content is really significant. And that's also probably why I fell in love with the song in the first place. Because when I, re- when I had the idea to do the piece, I had already listened to the song maybe 800 times. <laughs> you know, while doing the dishes, while walking out, while driving in my car, all this. This is a song that really became the soundtrack. And all the, this whole album, High Violet, really became a soundtrack of my life. And... And... Uh, and just just the kind of, the sheer kind of beautiful melancholy of this song. I've always thought of it as kind of the you know kind of the 
this the center point of the album really that 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 it's because it's so it depicts sorrow and like and so, or melancholia in such a beautiful way because it's like um it's sort of like like Victor Hugo said that melancholia is the joy of being sad and there's something like so sad and beautiful and heartfelt about the song but also it's joyful and and I think also that was, that also reminded me of like this the Shelley quote that used to be on the back of a of a Cure album Wish I had when I was a teenager and that I think that I think that quote actually had a huge effect on my art in general which was just like our sweetest songs are those that tell of saddest thought and and this is really a song like that it's a really sad thought but it's so well said I mean lines like you know sorrow is a girl inside my cake yeah and it's it, and it's sorrow is in my honey it's in my milk it's I think it's and and uh, Matt Matt Berninger is I think he's just such a such a really good poet actually right I consider him a poet I mean and did you although did he's you just a pop musician <laughs> <laughs> did you did you want to in a way test what playing that song for six hours might do to that song and might do to that authenticity and might do to that um, that very rich emotion of the song that it somehow might wear it out no I did I did not have the feeling that I was going to test it I just like I just felt like you know you know this is just I just need, need to put this into marble <laughs> <laughs> it was sort of the feeling I just wanted to like to do and to do actually turn the song into the form of an art piece because I was like and I always knew that like from the attitude of the band and the element of the song that this was just going to be you know this, well, that this was the song was not going to get boring or weary or it was just going to it was just going to build with time so I was very I was very kind of no I did not feel very experimental when doing it I felt like you know I'm just going to, I'm going to sculpt the statue of Al- Apollo into marble and <laughs> <laughs> that's just called what I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the you've explored through durational works in the past the, the idea of sorrow so you know thinking about that that Shelley quote and in the, in the work God for instance you personally sing a line very beautifully I have to say over and over about sorrow conquering happiness. Yeah. Yeah that was like yeah that was I remember that was a line that just came when I was doing a you know a concert with my band myself one you know many many years ago. I remember I was just like all fired up and and drunk and like wearing glittery glittery underpants and <laughs> and I remember I just like suddenly started screaming over the audience like sorrow conquers happiness and then the whole audience went like sorrow conquers happiness <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, and you then were I, drunk on power. Yeah, <laughs> I was drunk on power totally, <laughs> and and then uh, then that became that piece. And and I mean, I think I think also like, you know, maybe it's just that simple. Like us, because I was listening to the Cure as a teenager. Like sorrow has always kind of been a threat in my work. Yeah, as it as it as it creates something, something in us that as the notion of melancholia creates something. That that makes me happy, you know, in creating. It's like it's like a feeling that that yeah that I that I'm kind of always searching for in my works. But you're also aware of um, 
uh, of cliche and the idea of you know these are that you know the the, the the national song pushes pushes on the edges of cliche i think it sort of just stays this side of it but it, but it, it ventures into that territory and and a lot of your work deliberately plays with cliches yeah, right absolutely yeah and they also like yeah they that's also like what we sort of have a lot in common like they play with the cliche also a lot i mean they're like this kind of indie rock band cliche but then they are actually something more when you look under the surface which is yeah which which is why i kind of totally became flabbergasted about them like but uh uh then the uh the uh yeah because i always i always think cliches are so interesting because they are like like my friend magnus seurason said the cliche is the ultimate expression and he <laughs> it was the name of a work he did where he was like naked with a finger up his butt <laughs> and a cigarette in his hand <laughs> and I was like wow <laughs> and and because there's the truth in the cliche of course because it's somehow it's like it's like tourist places you know like I live in a country which is a tourist country I mean now and the tourists go to the most beautiful places you know <laughs> <laughs> it's no it's no it's no uh, you know it they are tourist places for a reason yeah and and clichés are clichés for a reason there's something really uh really uh there's a common thread in our in our culture that creates the cliché and and i'm just uh, interested in looking at it and kind of yeah trying to understand the cliché and that's the way that you subvert clichés seems to me to be at the core of your work this idea that for instance in the visitors you've got a lot of lonely musicians sitting in rooms which is a massive cliché you, you yourself in the bath yeah. sort of singing this melancholy song you know but but ultimately it's a really redemptive work because it is about a collective playing together and this lovely ending where you all run off into the sunset sort of thing so there's all again again the visitors plays with cliche but but you as well as sort of uh, acknowledging their their presence you kind of subvert them don't you yeah t- yeah i like it's true like i i always like when i'm making the works i'm like always aware that this is such cliche and it's always scary when you know like because it always but i'm always hopeful that something like that the the x factor <laughs> happens that something some that something subverts it or something something interesting happens when you go all the way in the cliche that's i think that i i work a lot with that actually ragnar thank you so much for talking to me thank you so much You can see the works discussed in that interview, A Lot of Sorrow, God and the Visitors, in Ragnar Kjartensen's exhibition at the Kunstmuseum Stuttgart in Germany until the 20th of October. The Visitors is also being shown in focus on Ragnar Kjartensen, which opens at the Dallas Museum of Art on the 15th of September. And his Metropolitan Museum show, featuring the new work Death is Elsewhere, is on until the 2nd of September. Now, John O'Confra has been a leading figure in British film for the past four decades, first as a member of the Black Audio Film Collective, for which he made a seminal work, Handsworth Songs, and since then on his own, and increasingly within museums and galleries, rather than the cinema. I spoke to O'Confra in June 2018, just as he was opening an exhibition at the New Museum in New York. I began by asking about Expeditions 1, Signs of Empire, one of the very earliest works by the Black Audio Film Collective. One of the many reasons why 
Black Audio came into being in the early 80s, 82 to be exact, was because the seven of us felt that some sort of uh, reconstruction work needed to be done uh, vis-a-vis black identities and images. You know, so one of the first things we embarked on was a sort of semiotic survey, if you will, of um, images of um, here and there. And, and, and one of the things we wanted to understand was the very construction of the here and there, you know, the signs of empire, if you will, the things which um, spoke uh, and evoked nativity, the things which spoke and evoked uh, colors, colonial peoples, and by implication, non-colonial peoples. We were really trying very hard to, to, to make sense of the history of representation, um, both of empire and of subjects in, inside the empire. Um, now, I think one of the reasons why they have it here is that a, a, a motif of signs of empire was a kind of investigation of what I would only now call colonial masculinity or imperial masculinity, you know, the, the kinds of masculinities formed out of having, uh, quote-unquote, great men open continents and uh, take part in wars and, you know, where they encounter savages and, and, and destroy them and become, you know, all of that. Basically, the, 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 the formation of... Um, European male identity um, in the colonies, if you will. Um, and that, that masculinity is one that I'm still interested in. I'm interested in the authorities that that masculinity invokes, you know, whether it's as a whaling captain in, in the form of Ahab or, you know, uh, <laughs> Steve Jobs. I'm interested in that kind of um, masculinity as excess, if that makes sense. It's the, the idea that somehow um, there's legitimacy to this dementia of excess where you know, people are forgiving the most appalling things. You know, you could be Steve Jobs and do the most appalling things to people, but we understand it because a certain kind of manhood suggests that the way to get things is to be appalling, <laughs> is to be, you know, completely uncaring and unfeeling towards other people's uh, uh, feelings. So I'm interested in that, and, and I think that's one of the motifs that runs and connects most of the work in the show. The, the centrepiece of the show is Vertigo C, which was a piece which was first made for the Venice Biennale in 2015, and it's a very ambitious three-screen video installation. Can you tell me about that work? And now that it's been installed several times, how does it? how is it evolving even in your experience of it? I mean, every time I watch Vertigo Sea um, in different locations, something, something strikes you that you hadn't, you hadn't uh, quite seen. Of course, you know, uh, Venice was largely uh, an art biannual um, and so Vertigo C was was one of many cacophonous voices in a space saying, you know, look at me, look at me, look at me, you know. Um, since then, uh, it's been, it's not done many biannuals, but it's, it's opened shows or um, played in museums. And there, 
different sorts of people come. You know, um, I don't want to call make the distinction between normal and not normal people. But you know, in a biennial, you've got collectors, buyers, and you know, exhibitors and museum uh, curators, and that's that's a sort of bulk of the people who I, I encountered in Venice. Um, whereas, you know, for example, in in in, in New York now, I'm I'm meeting office workers, professionals in the main, but you know people from very different walks of life. And it's really interesting to, to watch their reaction um, to it. Now, in the main, it doesn't, the reactions don't seem to differ an awful lot. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm, I'm not finding the people who, um, the curators who watched it uh, in Venice are saying, said or are saying very different things to the... Um, teachers who are watching it in New York with me at the moment, you know, so that's a very kind of, it's a comforting thought to know that there's a core of what you were trying to do, which seems to come across to people regardless of, of um, occupation or, or position. So what you mean is that there's a broad understanding of those big themes that you're exploring in the work. There's environmental themes, themes of migration, themes of displacement, those kind of, and you know, the, the, yes. the, the wide ranging imagery that you're exploring. Yes, I, I mean, I think so. I think so. One way in which I, I test myself to see whether um, uh, how people are responding to things differ from uh, location to location is if different questions come up. Um, and in the main, I, I've tended to, to pretty much get the same sorts of questions. So people ask me about why the... Uh, five or six interlocking stories of deaths at sea, why that sits with this sort of visual history of um, secession genocide, if you will. Um, the same questions seem to come up again and again and again, regardless of location. And um, it's kind of gratifying, because it does mean that there's something uh, essentially uh, intact at the core of vertical scene and that's that's pleasing to know does it have any significance to you that the work is showing in new york at the, at the exact moment that there is a crisis in america where we are witnessing images of incredible cruelty at the mexican border and Migration, obviously, is right at the heart of that discussion. And simultaneously, we just had the Rindrush scandal in the UK, where you see a dehumanisation of people who've been in the UK for generations. Is it of any significance to you that this work has that currency now? Can you see the work? Do you have? To, are you forced to see the work through that prism? Do you try and bat it away? How how do you feel about that connection? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I mean, I think in many ways you make works like this precisely because you know that the backdrop to them is the scandal, uh, the Windrush scandal, or the separation of children from their parents in, in, in America, uh, as is going on at the moment. You know, um, One makes works like this because you wanted to talk to those conditions. You wanted to say to people things that tends to be forgotten when these crises, quote-unquote, uh, erupt. And one of them is to remind people that, that there is a kind of utopian default to migration. 
no one leaves anywhere uh, with the hope that they might arrive in a new place, thinking they're going to be trouble, thinking there might be a burden, or thinking... You know, people leave um, because they think they, they're going to better themselves and, by implication, make a profoundly positive difference to the place that they're coming to. Um, and one of the, the really sad things, uh, and it's the thing that connects the two... Uh, conversations, if you will, the Windrush one uh, that we went through you know, a couple of months back now, I think, and, um, and what's going on in America, is that it's precisely that utopian dimension that animates people who want to go anywhere new that gets left out. It becomes this really depressing conversation about human beings as, as burdens and as trouble and as statistical anomalies, etc. Et you know, um, so one makes works like Vertigo see, because you wanted to participate in these conversations. Absolutely, yeah. I wanted to ask lastly about actually the early days and specifically the fact that you said that you went to the Tate when you were sort of 12 because it was, it was your local gallery, as it were, and, and had a sort of profound experience, but also discovered... Uh, European cinema at that time and I'm just interested in how those two kind of connections uh, informed what happened next and did you connect them immediately or did they come together only sort of almost sort of by osmosis? Yeah (laughs) what an interesting question Uh, I but I think it's it's a question that uh, tells you something about the time in which I received the calling from these two spaces, you know. Um, I mean, I was going to the Tate not really thinking of myself as a potential artist. I, I was just interested in in painting in particular at the time, you know, um, and started to go to, to sneak into the cinema because I was bored, you know, like every 13-year-old, <laughs> trying to find a new experience. And... In both spaces, I'm there because I want to be a consumer. Um, And it never entered my head that the two can somehow be fused in any way. It it just seemed, they seemed alien worlds. But it also seemed alien worlds because I never thought that this was, um, these were avenues that I would be allowed to pursue you know, uh, to to walk down or, or, or to, you know, because I, I think already by then you were becoming aware as a young uh, person of colour that there are certain prohibitions, let's say, certain prescriptions about what was possible and what was to remain impossible in your life. Um, and so I think I was then waking up to the possibility that, that there was a... Uh, an, a, a a prologue to be written, a first act to be to be undertaken, which would involve clearing some space for that the the involvement in either fields to be possible at all you know and it's only really much later actually um, that um, I started to be aware that there were these affinities, especially as I watched more and more uh, films, you started to see the ways in which um, you know, 
directors of photography or filmmakers were drawing from from the quote unquote art world, and it was only then that I started to think, okay, this is this is a possibility, and if it's a possibility, then one needed to look at it very you know concretely as something to be pursued, you know. Um, but that was in my twenties. I mean, I wouldn't, I didn't, I didn't think anything like that was possible beforehand. No. John, thank you so much for talking to me. No, it's a pleasure, sir. There's a host of exhibitions where you can see a conference work right now. A solo show, Ballasts of Memory, is at Baltic in Gateshead, UK, until the 27th of October. His work, Purple, is at the ICA Boston's Watershed Gallery until the 2nd of September. And Vertigo C can be seen in the exhibition, The Warmth of Other Suns, Stories of Global Displacement, at the Phillips Collection in Washington, D.C., until the 22nd of September. Vertigo C is also on view at Basse Marine in Bordeaux, France, until the 19th of September, and at the Zachet. National Gallery of Art in Warsaw until the 29th of September. Finally, Purple is on view at the Garage Museum Moscow until the 19th of November. One of the most famous of all video artworks is Christian Markley's The Clock. This 24-hour video installation is a moving image collage, plundering thousands of clips from a hundred years of film and television history that depict clocks or reference time. Wherever it's shown, it's synced with the time zone, so it acts as a clock telling the accurate time. It was made in a three-year period between 2007 and 2010, and has since been shown all over the world, to enormous public and critical acclaim. The work was acquired by various museums, including a joint acquisition by the Centre Pompidou in Paris, the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, and Tate Modern in 2012. In September 2018, it was shown for the first time at the Tate, and I met Christian at Tate Modern to discuss the work. The fact that it was made in London, I wondered if that affected the actual nature of the clips that were used in the sense that I know you had a sort of you and a team of people researching. Do you feel that some of the inevitable sort of biases of collections of videos in London affected the nature of the material in any way? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's very much, um, in a way... um, a portrait of all the video rental shops that um, have since disappeared in the last 10 years are, um, you know, gone. Everybody downloads their films. And um, so uh, it's very much about uh, what was avail- available in London um, during those three years um, that I was making the clock. Yeah, very much so. And And like I said, Big Ben... A lot of uh, British movies were um, featured and, and uh, you know, because they were available. And, uh, of course, they, if, if the action happens in London, you're pretty sure there's going to be a Big Ben shot. <laughs> um, tell me about the process between conceiving of this idea and the actual making of it. Was that quite a speedy transition or did you have to mull over how you were going to do it for quite a while before you actually put it into action? Um, well, I had one year that I, I was just um, basically messing around to see if it was possible. Uh, I didn't believe it was... Uh, I didn't totally believe it'd be possible uh, and only uh, after a year of experimenting, of finding material and seeing how I could put it together to make an interesting um, 
series of, of sequences and and to blend it all together. Um, yeah, so it was a bit of a gamble at first, um, and um, but it it worked out. After a year, I was convinced it, it could be done, and uh, if I was missing a minute, I could find a way to um, replace it with something else, or you know. Did you find yourself sort of carrying a notebook around with you all the time and noting down moments in films that you'd seen a clock or, or... No, no, I didn't watch any of the films. I, I just edited. I was busy enough doing that. And I had a bunch of assistants who um, were watching films all day and uh, bringing me uh, these, these uh, clips. And uh, no, I was, I was totally focused on the the editing and finding ways to to link all these fragments and to to create this um, illusion of, of continuity and um, yeah that that uh, was in a way that the more interesting part I think of kind of knitting all this fabric I mean I think that's that's one of the most striking things about this film it's not just a selection of random clips of certain times of day you've actually found ways to almost create mini narratives between the individual clips and in a way that's the most awe-inspiring part of it from my point of view yeah and but you know in when um because everything is sync um to the to the present um so at 10 a.m i i will of course see a lot of similar action taking place at 10 a.m and um, finding uh, the links between these these clips is is sometimes easier. I mean, if if it's noon and everybody's eating um, or starting to cook, you know, there's a lot of scenes happening in restaurants or kitchens, or so there there is a you know a, it's easier to link them. Um, and um, yeah, midnight. Uh, there's a lot of clips, of course. Uh, I mean, the, there's always a, a build-up, in a way, to the hour, because that's the material that I found. So I had more choices, you know, leading up to, to the hour, uh, being midday or midnight, um, or three in the afternoon, or three in the morning. Uh, that was a bit harder, though, three in the morning. Yeah. I suppose there's different sort of paces that occur during the films, aren't there? They sort of, you know, that you have longer, sometimes longer sequences of clips at sort of mo- at lulls, but then these amazingly almost frenetic moments of activity. Yeah, I mean, it, it's very much based on the material that I found. And, um, you know, sometimes uh, the hardest, I think, was just before 5 a.m. from like, let's say, 3 a.m. to 5 a.m. At 5 a.m. everything starts, you know, people wake up. Uh, they go to work, um, and um, but after three, uh, it, it gets a bit tougher. Uh, four to five is is difficult, um, but it's also just before you wake up is a time when you dream a lot, uh, and there's a lot of fabulous dream scenes in the history of film that I, I could use, um, and those are maybe you know fillers. Um, when I couldn't get the exact uh, clock, you know, on the bedside the, before the alarm clock went off. Um, but there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of people unable to sleep, uh, tossing around, um, hearing sounds, <laughs> you know. Uh, 
So I, I, I there was always a way to to fill that time. Um, I always wonder about during the editing process what effect it had on your mind. I mean, were you having strange dreams at the time that you were doing the editing? No, it was more physical. Um, you know, being. Uh, in the same position, editing, sitting down in front of the computer. I had some problems with my hand after a certain point, calluses. Um, I had to start yoga to uh, relieve the tension, and um, which was a good thing because I still do it. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, physically it was it was uh, tough, and now it's you know been ten years since I started, or eleven years since I started that project. Um, I don't, you know, I I find sitting in front of a computer all day editing uh, more and more difficult, you know. Yeah, and um, the origins of this work are ma- manifold, but there are sort of it seems to me sort of two landmark moments. One is the uh, 1995 film telephones and then video quartet which seemed like a big leap in the direction of the clock is that is that the sort of sequence that you identify or did you see it all as a sort of continuum from your very earliest experiments with collage and music yeah i mean all these uh these things influence uh my way of working and definitely the um djing and sound editing um i've always been you know collaging fragments from from found sounds so that was um very much there and especially in the soundtrack which is so important and um you know it really came out of that experience and 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 uh that that knowledge that you can sort of force things together even if they don't quite fit and and try to make something interesting out of all these fragments um and yeah, telephone was the, my first kind of video uh, collage, and um, video quartet was also quite uh, an important piece. Um, and um, yeah, that led to the clock. <laughs> um, can you tell me about the importance of Marcel Duchamp in terms of your the aesthetic of your work right the way through? Into, uh, in, in other words, the found object and how that sort of is the sort of fundamental principle of your work to a certain degree. Yeah, Duchamp is an artist I admire a lot, um, and um, he has opened a lot of doors in a way, um, allowing us to uh, work with whatever is in front of us. And, and um, um, you know, some... some um, yeah, the, the ready-made is... I always work with found objects, with, with what's there. I'm not interested in creating something, you know, new that no one has ever seen and, and uh, in a material that, uh, you know, um, I invented or something, you know. And um, we're always working with what's around us, even if you're a painter. Um, as Duchamp said, you know, the tube of paint is is you know already made um but also the the element of chance and um i also a big admirer of of john cage and so i think these are two very important artists in a way that they've allowed um not just me but um many artists to to work uh, with whatever 
is surrounding us. And um, I like doing that because this is really uh, what um, people know. And and my goal as an artist is to react to the, the environment I live in and the environment that we all share and to react to that, to sometimes be critical, sometimes um, show the beauty of it. Uh, it can be, you know, many different things. But um, I'm interested in, in everyday life and yeah, I'm always interested in the uh, outdated media in a way. Uh, not not that I'm necessarily looking for the media that's going to go out of fashion. It's just it just happens to be that by the time I, I you know get to work with it, it's on its way out, <laughs> becoming obsolete. So. Well, um, that's one of the interesting aspects of memory and time, I think, in the piece. There's all sorts of layers of time in the piece. Yes, it's a, it's called the clock and it's about, it is a clock. But there's all, but there's all sorts of, you know, cultural time and other, other forms of memory and time that, that, that haunt this piece. Did, did lots of that become apparent to you as you were working on it? Or did the sort of, the fully fledged concept of the work form quite, form in your mind you know as you began to to make the work well i i you know exploited that the that these jumps in time in in the video telephones um and then yeah that the fact that you're constantly jumping in in time really uh in in cinema history you know from old silent um black and white films to you know uh contemporary blockbusters and surround sounds um everything has been narrowed to uh, a quality stereo sound and uh, the different types of film that was uh, the different technology that was used over the years you know is part of the narrative you know you're you're going from a, an optical sound to to a digital sound uh, from color to black and white uh, also, uh, another layer, uh, is, is the actors that we're all so familiar with and how, uh, they, they age, uh, not in a chronological way, but you see the same actors at different times of their career. Um, that's another layer of, of, of time. Um, but more importantly, it is about your time as a viewer and, and you're the one that, um, um, interprets uh, the, what, what you're seeing and hearing, and you, because it's in sync with your life, you have a very different uh, relationship to it. Um, you're not um, transported into a different time. You're living uh, in the present, and this clock is telling you what time it is now. Uh, and you have to make choices, decide if you want to leave because you have another appointment or um, if you're tired or if you have to go to the bathroom or if you're hungry or you need your cigarette fix or whatever it is. Um, so you're struggling with, with, you have to decide how long you want to spend there. You have to, you know, so it's very much about you, the viewer, uh, that is um, projecting, you know, identifying with with what's going on uh, on the screen. Christian, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks.
The clock is on view at the Polygon in Vancouver until the 15th of September. Meanwhile, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art is showing new work by Markley, made using the social media channel Snapchat from 25th of August. You can read interviews with John Acomfra from January 2016 and Ragnar Kjartansson from July of the same year on our website in the new Replica Editions section for subscribers. Follow the link at the top right of the homepage at theartnewspaper.com. You can also read the art newspaper on our app for iOS, which you can find at the App Store. On the website, you'll find a range of subscriptions so that you can read our content seamlessly across multiple platforms. And you can subscribe for free to our daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Go to theartnewspaper.com and click on the newsletter link at the top right of the page. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you normally listen to them and please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio and we're also on Instagram and Facebook. The Art Newspaper Podcast is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack and edited by David. We'll be back with another Top of the Pods next week. See you then. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.